Thus far, World War III has not taken place. And no doubt, that is in large measure due to the fact that the UN provides a platform for all countries to come and vent to lead their issues, to provide a space for dialogue and negotiation that could save us from the scourge of war. Unhappily, we have situations going on currently where war is taking place. But certainly the situation in Ukraine is one that we regard as avoidable and unnecessary. It's an unlawful war. It ought never to have taken place. It's a direct violation. It is as if there was an attempt to tear up the charter and discard it. Can I just ask you then quickly, when we talk about Ukraine, it is two years since the full-scale Russian invasion of the country. There's still a shortage of food reaching the places that need it most, that come out of the, the world's breadbasket that is Ukraine and Russia. So come on, give us some practical solutions to how the UN is helping here. Well, the UN has no enforcement capacity. We're not an enforcement organization. Last week, there was an informal plenary discussing the situation in Ukraine because it's the two-year anniversary. We are now into the third year of the war. And at that time, I made a statement that was very clear, again condemning the invasion by Russia, calling for the immediate withdrawal of Russian troops and for the recognition of Ukraine's borders in the context of international law. Now, that may sound to some like nothing, but it is at the very core of UN values and principles because the whole basis on which the UN was founded is that sovereign states must recognize the territorial integrity of their neighbors and of all member states as a means of building strong, positive, friendly relations. That has been intercepted in the context of what Russia has done in Ukraine. And until that situation is corrected by the Russian Federation, it is going to remain on the agenda of the United Nations. It sets a very dangerous precedent in the violation of international law. And perhaps there may be other countries in the international system who might be looking on with an eye to taking similar action in their own jurisdictions, in their own regions, which we cannot allow to stand. Otherwise, we would descend into absolute lawlessness. That would only be destructive and take us back to the old days of gunboat diplomacy, which okay. nobody wants. George or not war, war. And of course, we can't move away from the area of conflict without mentioning Gaza, which is undoubtedly one of the most divisive problems for the international community the suffering of the civilian population there. And only last Friday, the head of the UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees, Philip Lazzarini, as you know, wrote to you saying that he fears a monumental disaster in Gaza and the West Bank amid repeated Israeli calls to dismantle UNRWA, the UN Agency for Palestinians, and the freezing of $450 million in funding by dozens of donors. This has seriously threatened the work of UNRWA, which is mandated by the General Assembly. Yes. So. As the head of the General Assembly this year, what's your response to these serious concerns? We have to understand that UNRWA has been a lifeline to the Palestinians from the very beginning. It is not for UNRWA to find a solution to the political question of the status of Israel and the homeland for the Palestinians. 
UNRWA's responsibility is to provide services and support to the people, the Palestinian community in Gaza and elsewhere in the territory. And they've done that. They are lifeline. The situation is a very dire one because if UNRWA should be mothballed, the question of what happens to the welfare of those people, that 1.5 million people trapped in the south of Gaza, what happens to them? Who will take responsibility for providing them with service? They are already in a virtual desperate situation. Lack of water, lack of food. They are living exposed to the elements. Uh, hospitals having collapsed. Reports, confirmed reports of children having legs and arms amputated without anesthetics. Can you imagine that for a moment? What that would mean for children? So my hope is that donor countries would maintain their assistance and support to UNRWA. Investigations are going on. The reports are not yet in regarding the findings of those investigations. But at any rate, the organization has a mandate given to it by the General Assembly and must be positioned, must be empowered to deliver its mandate. Not because UNRWA is privileged, but because the people who depend on it, their interests must be preserved. Uh, and we have to ensure that that commitment that the UN has given to look after those in need, that we honor that commitment. That seems like a very strong commitment to me in the face of stalemate in the Security Council. We don't have to get into that debate, but that seems like a very personal statement from you as President of the General Assembly that this issue is not going to slide. I wouldn't want it to slide at all. My presidency is largely people-focused, and the work of the UN really is people-focused. It is people that legitimizes the work of the UN. For instance, there are approximately eight or 900 million people living in abject poverty in the world today. We've given them a commitment in the context of the Sustainable Development Goals that we would do something to reduce those numbers significantly by 2030. Despite the fact that we have all of these other situations which demand attention and action, we must not lose sight of the fact that we have an obligation to use our best efforts to lift people out of poverty and marginalization. People have to be at the center of all that we do in the UN. And given the commitment that we have and given the primary importance of human rights, as you know, human rights is one of three pillars of the UN. It's peace and security, sustainable development, and human rights. What would be the probable justification for not ensuring the centrality of people in the work of the UN. It's a matter, really, of honor and credibility. That's something that brings me on to my next question, which concerns the Summit of the Future being hosted at the, the UN in September. Maybe you could explain in a nutshell to our viewers and listeners what the Summit of the Future is, because it's quite difficult to get your head around it, but maybe it touches on all the issues we've mentioned so far. In fact, it does. The Summit of the Future captures, so to speak, a number of issues. We're trying to look ahead to see what would be the key issues that will confront the international community and that can possibly be disruptive in destabilizing the system to see whether we can find a way of making common cause, coming to a robust understanding of how we tackle these issues. There will be 
of necessity, an overhang of concerns and issues from the present. Probably one of those might be the SDGs. But there will be some new issues, important issues, addressed in the pact of the future. There's a provision for a global digital compact, which is extremely important. Not to get lost in the details, but in negotiating that pact, the differing interests of countries have to be taken into account. Then there's the issue, for example, of artificial intelligence. How do you deal with that? Uh, artificial intelligence, of course, can provide many important benefits, but it doesn't come without a cost, if unregulated. Things like loss of privacy, ethical questions, what's acceptable and what is not. We've seen AI being used to put words in the mouth of the Secretary General. It may happen to you one day. Obviously, that is part of the problem, in addition to which the question of social media and its impact on governance generally, but more than that, its capacity to spread disinformation and misinformation in a way that can cause mass panic in society because of the facility with which that information and disinformation can be spread. Talking about fundamental rights, well, climate is one of them, isn't it? The right to a climate that is not going to kill you, that's not going to make you lose your home, and that's going to be able to provide you with work. And this comes amid increasing climate-related challenges and disasters. And you come from Trinidad, Tobago, so you know about the small island states' issue with rising waters. It's existential. How do you believe that countries can enhance their resilience and what steps would you like to see the UN system take to support these efforts? We've already started to take steps. The General Assembly agreed to a high-level meeting on September 25th during high-level week to address specifically the issue of sea level rise in the context of climate change that is particularly impacting small island developing states but not just small island developing states, countries with low-lying coastal areas as well. I have made this uh, a headline issue in my presidency because it impacts a number of countries in different regions in the world, but also because I feel very strongly that these countries did not and do not contribute significantly to the problem of climate change. In fact, most of them have minuscule carbon footprints, yet they are confronted with some of the most dramatic impacts, you said it, and the possibility, the likelihood perhaps, of it becoming an existential threat. To a significant degree, countries like islands in the Pacific are confronting this reality. I felt it important enough that since the international law is silent, for example, on the status of countries, that might be inundated. What happens to their sovereignty? What happens to their membership of the United Nations? Can they exercise the obligations they need to exercise if their territory has disappeared under the water? And what's the latest on that? Well, that's what the negotiation will produce. Hopefully, some sort of, un of understanding as to what happens. It could require further consideration. We may not achieve it all in the context of the uh, high-level meeting, but certainly to get it onto the agenda of the UN as an important issue that warrants deep consideration and action because these countries do not have the wherewithal to cope with the impacts on their own. They will need the support 
of the international community, bearing in mind that everyone must make a contribution. 